I hate the corrupt, slaveholding, women whipping, cradle plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of the land. I am filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate the religious pomp and show, together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. We have men stealers for ministers, women whippers for missionaries, and cradle plunderers for church members. The slave prison and the church stand near each other. The rattling of chains in the prison and the pious psalm and solemn prayer in the church may be heard at the same time. The dealers in the bodies of men erect their stand in the presence of the pulpit and they mutually help each other. Here we have religion and robbery, the allies of each other. Devils dressed in angels' robes and hell presenting the semblance of paradise. Those strong words were written in 1845 by Frederick Douglass, who was a black slave in Maryland, United States. He went on to be a reformer, abolitionist, and advisor to the president. And he wrote in eloquent and stark and horrifying terms about the horrors of slavery, the oppression, the racism, and the involvement and complicity of the American culture around it. Now, the slave trade was a blight on, in Western history, on both sides of the Atlantic, of course. And when we hear reports like that, it still makes us shudder, doesn't it? Now, it's been 150 years since Douglas wrote those words. And in many ways, the world is different. Abolition is long behind us. Our society has progressed since then. These days we are a much more tolerant society. We consider ourselves on the right side of history. And yet, we live in a time where pride in our tribe and fear of the other is still very much alive. Nationalism is on the rise in Europe. There is the presence of anti-immigrant and Islamophobic sentiment in sections of our society. And we often associate racism and xenophobia with the far right. But even on the left, our Labour Party has been plagued by a nearly three-year anti-Semitism crisis. Just this last week, 60 Labour peers signed an advert which appeared in the Guardian newspaper that was calling out Jeremy Corbyn and his allies for allowing anti-Jewish hatred to grow into, in the party and shielding those who were guilty of racist conduct. Fear of the other is still prominent in this society. And as Frederick Douglass wrote, an added horror is when Christian culture is implicated as well. The church is not always immune to these same problems. And sometimes even the religious need saving. Well, in the midst of all this ugliness, how does the Bible speak into these issues? Well, we're pausing our series on Proverbs, and we're going to be spending a month in this book of Jonah. And Jonah is a book that deals directly with themes of national identity, xenophobia, how we view who are inside and who, how we view who are outside. And in a day like ours, we need to hear what Jonah has to say. We need to see our pride and prejudice, and Jonah addresses that. But we also need to see how God is different 
that he is gracious and compassionate to all. And Jonah wonderfully teaches that. So we're going to look at that over the next few weeks. And we will begin in the first chapter of Jonah today. I'm going to focus on uh, three themes. Fleeing, folly, and faith. So firstly, fleeing. So look back down on the passage with me. You want to keep your Bibles open. We're going to be referring to the scriptures there. We are introduced to Jonah in verse 1. And we're told that he is the son of Amittai. And the only other info we have about him is in the book of Two Kings, where we learn that he is a prophet living around uh, 700 to 800 years before Jesus in the northern kingdom of Israel. So at this point in history, God's people, the Israelites, were in national and spiritual decline. The golden age of King David and King Solomon where the nation was united and there was prosperity, those days were long gone. The kingdom had split with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And Jonah was based in that northern kingdom in Israel. So that's his context. And then reading on, we see in verse 2 that God has a mission for Jonah. It says this, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, this is interesting. Prophets normally spoke God's word to God's people, the Israelites. And occasionally they would have messages for foreign nations, but they would still be based where the Israelites were. And yet here, God commands Jonah to go on a business trip, to go to the city of Nineveh and to challenge them for their evil ways. Now, as the text says, Nineveh was a great city a significant city, because it was the chief military center of the Assyrian Empire. And Assyria was the great superpower of the day. It was a nation driven by conquest, expanding their territory by invading other nations. They were the fear of the ancient world, comparable perhaps to the the Nazis or the Soviet army in the 30s and 40s, a strong military power with a taste for barbarism. Historical records exist which detail the tactics and intimidation Assyrians would use in their warfare. For example, when they would besiege a city, they would take corpses of people they'd already killed and put them on poles and hang them over the walls so that the people would see what would happen to them if they didn't surrender. And out of fear, they would kind of give up. They were known for torturing their enemies. Some in ways that are frankly probably inappropriate for me to describe in this sermon. They were evil. They were evil. And yet here is Jonah being commanded to go right to the military heart of the Assyrian Empire and challenge Nineveh on God's behalf, calling it out for its injustice. And you can see in verse 3 what Jonah thinks of the idea. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So Jonah refuses to do what God has told him, and he does a runner. Now, we've got a little map there on the screen for you to see. Um, So this is northern Israel. Joppa is a port just there on the uh, west side. Jonah was probably based around here. And you can kind of see... Um, he basically ran in completely the opposite direction to where he should have gone. So Nineveh is up, where are we? Nineveh is up there, 
And Tarshish, we're not sure exactly where it is, but we think it's probably perhaps southern Spain, kind of Morocco area. Um, so Jonah goes the complete opposite direction. Now just think about what Jonah is doing here. Not only is this a career-ending move for a prophet, but he's putting himself in exile. He's moving away from his friends and his family, isolating himself away from God's people into a foreign land for who knows how long. So Jonah is desperate, desperate not to go to Nineveh. Now, you'd think that the reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh was because he was scared. But that actually isn't the case. If you flick forward just to chapter 4, verse 2, we'll get to this in later weeks, we learn that Jonah isn't fleeing because he's afraid. He's fleeing because he doesn't want Nineveh to receive God's mercy. You see, if he preaches to them and calls them out, there's always the chance that they might actually listen to him, turn from their ways, and escape the judgment of God. And Jonah can't bear the thought of that. So he runs away and abandons his post. Now, we have to understand that this is an absolute scandal for Jonah to do this. You see, to be a prophet in the Old Testament was a high privilege. The prophets carried the very words of God himself. They spoke with his authority. Their job role was simple but immensely important. Communicate the message that God has given you. It was a revered calling. You see, prophets were at the top of the spiritual tree. They were the ones everyone looked up to. They were expected to do the right thing, even if the whole nation was going um, away from God's ways. And yet Jonah is given a solemn message from God himself, and he flees. He runs away. And just in these first three verses, we, we learn an, imp an important principle. Even the most respected member of God's people can run away. Even the best of us can deliberately flee from what the Lord calls us to do. Now, we all run away from Jesus' commands in a thousand little ways, don't we? We choose not to be generous with our time or money when he calls us to. We sometimes run away from our responsibilities to our family, whether that's our parents or our children or our spouse. But you know what? It is not beyond us to run away from God in even more profound ways. Down south, there's a lead pastor of a large, prominent evangelical church who once called his staff into a meeting, large staff, and he warned them. He said this, you know, once, perhaps once or twice in your life, there will be someone who comes along into your life for whom you will drop everything to be with them. Your spouse, your job, your children, even your faith. People like that will come into your life. So watch out for it. Now he gave that warning because it's a real danger. We must not think that because we are solid Christians with a good spiritual CV that we would never do what Jonah did and profoundly run from the Lord in rebellion. It's not beyond us. 
few years ago, I knew a guy who did a program called UCCF Relay. So this is a, a discipleship program that is based with the Christian unions around the country. It's a great program. It often attracts emerging leaders. And perhaps there's a degree of respectability that goes along with doing the program. Well, for all this training and input, it didn't stop this man from running away from Jesus. He wanted to be in a sexual relationship with a girl who didn't know the Lord, and he made his choice. He stopped coming to church. He drifted off radar. As far as I know, spiritually, he's nowhere now. You know, some of the most grave sins can be committed by the most respectable Christians. The danger is that in our pride, we consider ourselves immune to this kind of falling We can be blinded by our privileges. You know, we may take pride in the fact that we go to a healthy Bible-teaching church. We may come from good Christian stock. Perhaps your family are all Christians. You were raised in a Christian home. We may consider ourselves well-taught. We may serve faithfully and sacrificially. We may have years of Christian experience. You know what? None of these things guarantees by themselves that we'll never flee from Jesus. So we must not let our pride blind us to these dangers. Scripture warns us, doesn't it, that our hearts are deceitful. We must watch out for complacency. If a prophet with the privilege that Jonah had can do a runner, then so can we. So we must examine ourselves. Where might you be tempted to flee from the Lord? What is it that if it came along in your life, you'd drop everything for? Might not be a lover. Could be money or status. Watch out. Even the respectable can flee from God. Well, back to the story. Jesus has received his call to preach to Nineveh, but he's run away. And the text says that he's run away from the Lord. He's running away from the Lord. How successful do you think that is going to be? The answer is, not very. So we've seen Jonah flee. Secondly, folly. Folly, foolishness. Pretty much straight away in the story, it becomes clear that trying to escape from God is futile. We pick up the story in verse 4. Look down with me. Jonah has boarded a boat. He's going the opposite direction to Nineveh. But God sends a wind that whips up a storm. And it looks like that this storm is going to destroy the boat. You can imagine it, can't you? Dark clouds, torrential rain, howling winds, the waves of the sea getting bigger and bigger, water smashing against the wood of the fragile boat. It's a precarious situation. Verse 5 says that these sailors who would have been experienced were terrified. They try to chuck everything out the boat that they can, all the spare weight. And each of them, it says, cries out to their own God. So these sailors are not Israelites. They don't worship the Lord. It says in the text it refers to the Lord in small capitals. That's um, a transliteration of God's name, which is sometimes pronounced Yahweh. They do not worship Yahweh. They worship other gods. They are foreigners with different religious beliefs. You see, in the ancient world, many um, religious people believed in gods that had their own little territories. They were kind of limited to a particular area. They had boundaries. So each sailor here is kind of crying out to his God in the hope that the storm and the sea might come under the jurisdiction of one of them. 
Maybe one of them is in charge of them, of the sea, and will be able to sort of stop the storm. And so this explains what happens next. Jonah is below deck in a deep sleep for whatever reason, we're not sure. And he's oblivious to the chaos that is happening above him. So the captain comes down and wakes him up. He says this, verse 6, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And the sailors tried to work out um, who's responsible for what's happened. So it says, verse 7, they cast lots, which are like dice, to see if they can find the source of the problem. Now, casting lots was an ancient way to seek divine guidance. And it might seem superstitious to us. But in this case, the Lord chooses to use it to indicate that Jonah is the one who is responsible. So the sailors confront him because they want answers. Verse 8, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And so in the middle of this frantic storm, Jonah is cornered and he has to spill the beans. So in verse 8, he explains he is a Hebrew or an Israelite who worships the God of heaven, who made and is in charge of everything, land and sea. He isn't a territorial God. His rule extends over all things, all creation. And it says in verse 10 that Jonah also told them that he was fleeing from God. Now, at this point, Jonah is starting to look a little bit stupid do you not think? You can imagine the, how the chat is playing out with the sailors at this point, can't you? You can imagine one of the sailors. Right, hold on a minute. Let me, let me get this straight. So you're telling me you believe in a God who rules everything. He dwells in the heavens. He, makes the, he made the land and the sea. And you're trying to run away from him on the sea. The foolishness of Jonah is exposed, isn't it? And not only does he look stupid, he's reckless. It looks like he's going to get everyone killed. So in verse 10, the sailors kind of say what we're all thinking. What have you done? What have you done? These non-Israelite outsiders have a better grip on reality than the Lord's own prophet. And so the sailors try and come up with a solution. They say in verse 11, what should we do to you? And Jonah's answer is interesting. Look at verse 12. Pick me up, he says, and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Pick me up and throw me in the sea. Now, there's logic there. There's logic there. Jonah's disobedience deserves death. Absolutely. He's rebelled against God, and he's brought shame on himself as a prophet. But his answer is actually quite telling as well. Telling not so much for what he says, but for what he doesn't say. Notice, Jonah doesn't try to repent. He doesn't ask forgiveness for resisting God's call. He doesn't attempt to make it right. He doesn't try and fulfill God's command and head for sure and to Nineveh. The sailors tried to sail back, but that's their idea. That's not Jonah's idea. Even now, Jonah refuses to do what God has told him to do. 
he would rather drown than change course. Isn't that striking? His heart seems so hardened, he would rather die than embrace God's will for him and live. It's all so stupid, isn't it? God has given Jonah a mission, and yet he's chosen instead to abandon his job, run away from his community, which is never going to work because you can't run away from a God who is in charge of everything and is everywhere. And now he's been found out, and rather than change his mind, rather than turn back on his course, he'd rather just die. Do you see the folly of it all? The stupidity of it? Running away from God is futile. It's futile. You know, choosing to ignore God's will for us may seem like a good idea at the time, but ultimately it harms us and it harms others. And so in this sense, it's irrational. It's, it's kind of as tragic as, as those with addictions. I don't know if you've ever seen the kind of before and after pictures of those who suffer from the effects of long-term drug abuse. You can kind of see it on their faces, what the drugs, drugs have done to them. It's, it's so awful and shocking. Before, they look like everyday normal people. But in those aftershots, you see bags under their eyes, blemishes and cuts on their faces. They look gaunt and pale, drained of life, a shadow of their former selves. It is so sad, it's so sad. Now, of course, the nature of addiction is, is complex. I don't want to pretend that it isn't. But at some level, these people have chosen behaviors that have ultimately damaged them. And in the same way, if we run away from God's law, it damages us and it can hurt others. And we know this, don't we? There are countless examples of this. Think of the carnage that occurs because of sexual unfaithfulness. Those who dropped everything to be with that person who came in their life. It devastates relationships, destroys marriages, and crushes children. Many of you here may have the baggage of coming from a disrupted home life. Baggage that you may carry around with you for years. It's so damaging. And even if it's not immediately damaging... Even if running away from God, whatever that looks like, seems to produce no obvious, immediate negative effects in the short term, what will it achieve eventually? It's futile, isn't it? We can't escape from the God of heaven any more than Jonah could. One day we'll, we will all have to stand and give an account to him on that final day, give an account of our lives. And no matter how great and freeing running feels like now, Eternal consequences catch up with us. How much better that we run to God through his son Jesus than run from him. If we run to him, we can receive forgiveness and life. But the temptation and danger is that we run from him. And to do so is foolishness. Finally then, faith. So at this point in the story, we've seen something extraordinary Jonah is the cream of the religious crop. He's a prophet of God himself, and he's pretty much shipwrecked his life. He's run away from God, and he's embraced foolishness. Now, if that's how the number one spiritual guy in the culture has just responded to the Lord, what about these foreign, idol-worshipping sailors who don't even know God at all? 
How are they going to respond? Well, the answer is with faith. They respond with faith. You see, this is a turning point in the whole chapter. Up to now, we've seen Jonah's rebellion and foolishness, but here the story draws a sharp contrast. It compares Jonah and his response to God with the sailors and their response to God. And quite surprisingly, it is these sailors who provide the model of faith. And the passage shows us this in multiple ways. Firstly, notice their compassion. Jonah has just told them to throw him into the sea. And what do they do? Look at verse 13. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. Rather than just throw him overboard, they do their best to row super hard against the waves um, and the wind to get back to land, to keep them and Jonah safe. Now, I don't know about you, but I can imagine some people who, having just realized what danger Jonah has put them in, when he says, throw me, over the sea, throw me overboard into the sea, they'd only be too happy to oblige. But no, these guys try and find another way. Secondly, they call out to the Lord. It becomes clear quickly that they're not going to be able to row back to the land as the storm is getting worse. And it seems they have no option but to chuck Jonah overboard as he has told them to do. But what do the sailors do first? They pray. Verse 14, please Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. That is, God is the one who has orchestrated this situation, so the only thing they can do is throw Jonah into the sea, and so they ask God not to hold them responsible. They pray. Now notice, this is the first recorded prayer in the book. Who are the ones praying? It's the sailors. God's own prophet is not the first to pray. These sailors are. The religious outsiders Thirdly, look what happens. They throw Jonah overboard and the sea instantly calms. The storm is still. And how do these sailors respond then? Verse 16, this is astounding. Look at this. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. They feared the Lord. Fear here, not meaning terror, but reverence. Uh, an awe, uh, a willingness to let God be in control, an acknowledgement of who he is. They greatly feared the Lord, and they offer a sacrifice. Now, this probably happened after the scene on the boat. This is kind of like an epilogue to the story, because they'd thrown most things overboard during the storm, so they probably didn't have any animals to sacrifice. So this is after the fact. But they choose to worship the true God and they make vows. That is a permanent commitment to God. Now this is really amazing. The speech of the sailors, the prayers um, on the boat is backed up by action. They didn't just pray on the boat when everything was difficult, but then once the storm calmed, they went about their merry way and forgot about everything. They had an encounter with the Lord and their response is not to flee, but to follow the experience, what we might consider a conversion. So this chapter in Jonah completely turns our expectations upside down as we read it. Jonah is the prophet of Israel. He is exposed as a disobedient runaway. 
And yet these sailors, who are unclean foreigners, as far away from God as they could be, show genuine faith and respond to God in a way that puts Jonah to shame. So what this chapter declares to us quite clearly is this. Anyone can come into relationship with God. Anyone. Even the outsiders. Even the foreigners. Those you would least expect. They can respond, respond to God in faith even in a way that shames the religious insider. The God of the Bible will welcome anybody from any background into relationship with him. And we should, we should expect to see that. And this is true of the Christian church. When Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came to earth, he foretold that the message of him would be proclaimed in all nations and signaled that all kinds of people from every kind of background would be coming to him in faith and welcomed into his church. And this is happening. This is happening. So uh, the nation of Iran has been in the news over the past few days. There are tensions between its government and our government, and the United States as well. And when we think about a country like Iran, we, we see it as representing a radically different culture from our own. It's, it's leadership and the religious authorities hold values that kind of clash with our Western way of looking at things. And when it comes to something like Christianity in Iran, it is illegal to become a Christian if you're an Iranian Muslim. And Christians in the country are routinely arrested, they're prosecuted, and they're given long jail sentences. And yet, in Iran, the Christian church is among one of the fastest growing in the whole world. Iranians are thought to be one of the most open people groups on the planet to hearing the gospel. And this openness is spilling out into the rest of the world. As many Iranians are choosing to leave their country and are coming to the West, they're coming to Europe, hearing the gospel and turning to Jesus. And this is happening here too. One of our partner churches, Oldham Bethel, just the beginning of this month, baptized two Iranian men, Amir and uh, Mohsen, who have come to faith themselves in the Lord Jesus. Now, you know, Iran might seem like a foreign outsider culture to us. When you think of your typical Christian person, an Iranian may not come to mind. And yet, God is doing a great work amongst these people, and many of whom had never previously even heard of Jesus are coming to worship him as their Lord and Savior. Truly, anyone from any background can be saved. Well, what does this mean for us then? Well, a word to Christians and a word to those who are not Christians. Christians, here looking to share the good news of Jesus with others, who do you feel is beyond God's grace? Who's the person in your life who you will feel will never respond positively to Jesus? Might be the person who has no concept of the gospel. It might be someone who has been around Christian things in the past and has chosen consciously to reject Jesus themselves. Do you think that they're beyond God's grace? Now, the temptation is to feel that these dear people are lost causes spiritually. But look at the sailors. They were as far as can be from the Lord. They'd never even heard of him, and yet God saved them. Have we become jaded 
Have we lost our confidence and passion in praying for others and speaking to them about the hope we have? Christian, please keep going. Keep going. Jonah 1 shows us that God is in the business of saving the unlikely ones. And so if we know that, then we won't stop praying. We don't have to cease being willing to speak of Jesus in risky ways. Who knows, maybe this chapter is the adrenaline shot that we need to pump the energy back into our witness. And for those of you who do not follow Jesus, who may consider themselves outsiders looking in, this passage has profound implications for you. Because it makes clear that whoever you are, you can become a Christian. Some of you may enjoy coming to Grace Church. You might think that Christians are a kind of nice bunch of people. But you might think, well, it's not really for me. Christianity isn't really for me. I come from a different culture. I come from a different country. In my home context, people don't become Christians. It it just doesn't really fit with my identity. Well, for for these sailors, nothing in their background prepared them for the encounter they would have with the living God. But nothing in their background stopped them either. Having met with the Lord, it changed them and they were willing to commit themselves to him. And all over the world, from culture to culture, this happens. Men and women from every culture and country are turning to Jesus and joining his people. Indians, Africans, Middle Easterners, Russians, Chinese, secular Europeans. Even in this room, we have a wealth of cultural backgrounds represented. There is no culture that the Lord Jesus is not Lord over. So whoever you are, wherever you're from, you can come into Jesus' family. And perhaps today is the day. To run away from the Lord is foolish. It harms us, and in the end, it gets us nowhere. And yet it's not beyond us to do it. Our religious credentials do not guarantee our faithfulness. So we should not be complacent and think of ourselves better than others. But rather, we should realize that even the most unlikely people can receive the grace of God. So whether you consider yourself an insider or an outsider, let's run to Jesus, not from him. He has forgiveness and grace for all our wanderings. And we can trust that he is mighty to save and come to him confidently that he will accept us and love us and bring us into his family if we're not there already. Let's pray, shall we?